The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1924, the critic and editor Gilbert Seldes wrote the following paragraph, quote, It is rich with something we have too little of, fantasy. It is wise with pitying irony. It has delicacy, sensitiveness, and an unearthly beauty. The strange, unnerving, distorted trees, the language inhuman, unanimal, the events so logical, so wild, are all magic carpets and fairy foam, all charged with unreality. Through them wanders crazy, the most tender and the most foolish of creatures, a gentle monster of our new mythology. End quote. That's crazy with a K, because he was talking about Crazy Cat. Here was a man in Seldes famous for editing The Dial, which had published T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, about as high as high art gets. And yet he's reserving a special category of praise for, of all things, a comic. For the past 200 years or so, and especially for the past 100, comics have been an enduring feature of our culture. Superman and his Action Comics number 1, Batman and his Return, Art Spiegelman, Manga, Neil Gaiman, famous for his Sandman comics, and whose name is an anagram for I-Manga. I just realized. Was that intentional? Hmm. Anyway, you get the point. I hope. We tend to think of comics as for kids, down there with childish playthings to be put away as one ages. But that would be a mistake. First of all, because things important to children are important to all of us anyway. We inherit them as we grow older. They have formed us. But also because, obviously, comics have also been employed by grown-ups for grown-up purposes. They are a distinct artistic genre combining visuals, language, and narrative, and their impact and influence are often hard to see. Enter today's guest and today's book, The Cambridge Companion to Comics, and its editor, Maheen Ahmed, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Let's change things up. We'll take a break from Emily Dickinson today. And have our guest, Maheen Ahmed. And then we'll close with a last book, with a My Last Book from, you know what my last books are, right? This is where the guests choose the last book they will ever read. We'll choose one today with our guest. How about Elizabeth Winkler, who is still in the news for her book on Shakespeare's authorship and the concomitant controversies. Will she choose a book by Shakespeare? We will see. So here we go. Mahin Ahmed is next. Okay, joining me now is Mahin Ahmed, the Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Ghent University, Belgium, where she specializes in comics. She joins us today to discuss the Cambridge Companion to Comics, which she edited. Mahin Ahmed, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So when did you first become interested in comics? I wasn't a comics fan. I, I just read comic charts in the newspapers mm-hmm. um, and just a few random Tintin and Asterix albums that I came across and some, yeah, some Peanuts compilations, but that was about it. Yeah, right. So was it after you became a, a professional scholar and academic that you developed this interest or were you, did you discover it in before that, as something that would be a worthy topic of your research? Yeah, I actually, my, my academic career started with comics because um, that was the topic that I chose for my PhD thesis. So mm-hmm. I decided to try and figure out what a graphic novel could be in its diverse um, manifestations across yeah, the U.S., the U.K., um, France, Belgium, Germany, Finland, and so forth, just to try and understand what was happening to comics around, let's say, from the 1960s onwards. Mm. Was the 1960s when we started to see a change in the rise of graphic novels? I think more than that, there's a change in readership. So there's a, a comics started attracting a, 
retaining reader, readers who had read comics as children and mm. wanted to read comics that spoke to them. So there is that shift that also entailed different kinds of narratives. So it happens from both ends, I think. I, I think artists also realize that they can use comics for diverse means of expression that sort of diverge from the mainstream. But on the other hand, there are also readers that were open to it and were almost thirsty for stories in comics forms that could still be relatable for them. Right. When you say they could diverge from the mainstream, do you mean because there are illustrations included along with text, or are you talking about a different kind of divergence in topic or theme? Yeah, I was thinking more in terms of genre and the kinds of stories being told. This move towards more complex narratives, even in mainstream genres, such as a superhero, Mm. or if you think of something like Asterix, which had a humor that was trying to cater to a broader audience as well. So it's more related to what kinds of stories you can tell with the comics form that can go beyond the good, bad, binary, or simple gag. Mm. Right. And is there something about comics in particular that let you escape that binary of good and bad? Or is it that the artists feel freer when they're working with comics, that they don't feel the sort of obligations that, a, let's say, a novelist would? Um, I think it's a commercial form, right? So there has to be a, a market. Mm-hmm. The then publishers willing to publish that kind of material so that they feel that it's sellable. I think it's hard to say you have the underground press on one hand sort of producing comics that tackle social, personal, very critical issues and they sort of, they broke away from the comics code that was so restrictive, right? And that was in place from the 1950s onwards. And then in France, you have this move towards um, long-form comics, say, end of the 60s, 70s, but also these very beautiful artistic science fiction comics that are also more for an adult audience than for children. Right. Well, one thing I think maybe we should get on the table is is whether you define comics in some way. I know they can range from a, a serialized strip and a three-panel joke, essentially, Mm -hmm. or even a single panel gag kind of thing, something that could make a six-year-old laugh. And they could range all the way up to a a graphic novel that's clearly intended for adults. Is all of that fair game for you and and the Cambridge Companion to comics? Or is there some kind of definition that narrows the scope? The aim behind the Cambridge Companion to comics was to work with a broad definition of comics so that we could sort of understand its diverse manifestations. So I write in the introduction that we kind of work with comics as a medium, and then that medium encompasses different forms, such as the comic strip, yeah, even the cartoon, even though we don't really have essays on the cartoon as such, so the single panel cartoon. It also encompasses the graphic novel, the comic books, the serial comic books, web comics, and so forth. It's basically, there's so many definitions of comics, right? And yeah. I thought it was just interesting to try and understand what this medium, which is, well, usually combines words and images, but not always, and it's often, but not always sequential, what it does or what kinds of forms it can occupy across different Plus different time periods, but also different formats and so forth. Mm-hmm. Are you limiting yourself to print, or can it include, say, film and television? So we do have a chapter on multimodal comics, so how comics were sort of interacted with other media and how they, yeah, how they lent their stories to well, television series, or how their attempts to make the drawn comic move. But mm. other than that, most of the chapters are on print comics, with the exception of one chapter, which deals precisely with this phenomenon of digital comics, which in itself is a whole wide world mm. of different kinds of production. So mm-hmm. digitized comics, but also webtoons, Instagram comics, and so forth. 
and we thought it was very important to also include this new development so to right. understand what happens to comics across different material constraints. And do academic studies and, and people like yourself who are professors who would attend conferences or or give papers and so on on, on comics, do they tend to focus on a particular kind of comic? Are they mainly dealing with the what we would consider more grown-up versions and the, the graphic novels and so on? Or is it pretty broadly diverse and that the study is also of everything from serialized strips and, and single panel comics to the maybe a, a Spiegelman's mouse, for example? Yeah, it's um, that's a good question. It's, comics is a very small field, so comic mm-hmm. studies is relatively young and still interdisciplinary, but quite small. And, and it started out more with the strong focus on the graphic novel, because I think that was the form that most scholars could relate to. Mm-hmm. Most comic studies scholars do come from literature or cultural studies departments, so they are comic scholars from art history or from right. studies and media studies, but it's dominated by literature scholars. And for them, I think the graphic novel, which is a very neatly contained form, mm-hmm. which is very close to the novel, was the most accessible form. It's also the easiest form to introduce into a literature course mm-hmm. at a university. For instance, math is a classic now for it appears in so many reading lists and so forth. So that used to be, and I think to a certain extent still remains, the focus of scholarship on comics, but things are changing. So now you do see, you will always see a few papers on digital comics. You see some papers on cartoons. So I'm thinking of an academic conference on comics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You also now and then see material on serial comics, but obviously these are more unruly forms. Right, because a a serialized comic could take place over decades. Yeah, yeah, it's a a different kind of object altogether. Yeah. The serialization, it seems to be such a central part of the relationship that the public had with comics. I mean, that you'd get a little dose every day. Just that. And then maybe you'd wait, you know, every year or a couple of years, maybe there would be some kind of anthology or compendium. But it does seem like they're so connected in my mind with newspapers, although newspapers are something we're kind of losing. Is the serialized comic something that is treated now almost historically? Well, not only historically, but I think what's interesting is to see how it sort of developed historically, how you, for instance, in the case of the Yellow Kid, how it sort of became a serialized character. There's been a lot of excellent work on that comic character. Those were often single panel comics, right? Very big single panel comics, Mm. almost like a painting and so forth. In the sense of a tableau that sort of has the whole scene that is being depicted. I think it's always at the back of a lot of comics creation in some way or another. If you think of graphic novels such as Watchmen, for instance, it collects stories that were serialized over a certain period of time that came out monthly as comic books and then they were Mm. put together. And even Parts of Mouse were serialized, or Fun Home, for instance, was also published in many different forms, maybe not fully serialized, but still, they, a lot of the graphic novels also do have these pre-lives in different publication formats. The best example is perhaps Chris Ware's um, Jimmy Corrigan, which is preceded by the Acme Novelty Library, which is a comic book that he had created around the same character in that world, and then he sort of distilled it into a graphic novel. The dynamics are sort of, you can you can almost say they haunt certain kind of graphic novels, and I think they also haunt comic studies in, in the sense that this also creates this kind of, this leads to the legitimization issue surrounding comics, right? Are they legitimate enough to be talked about in a scholarly Mm. in scholarly discourse or in a classroom. So it's present in different ways. And obviously, if you if you think about comic books or comics magazines, then you're automatically in that. 
you have to talk about the serialization of that work. Mm -hmm. You said they haunt academic studies of comics? I think the, the fact that comics themselves were often regarded as popular culture, lower or mm. a lower form of culture, that right. has haunted, yeah, scholarship. Not anymore, maybe, but early scholarship was clearly haunted by it. Maybe even now, in, in everyday life, if you say you work on comics, people don't take you very, very seriously, or they do raise their eyebrows and they say that, how and why, and what do you do with them? Right. Right. Although one thing that you could probably say is the number of readers that a comic might have when you add yeah. it up over time and when you multiply it across all the different people who would turn to the funny pages, as we would say here in the States, it's definitely a phenomenon. You could see where this would be reaching people and a comic that has some any kind of ambition to change people's minds or get a point of view across or set people uh, set people up for being introduced to new kinds of things. Um, you can see where the impact it would have might be might be far more than a novel that sells ten thousand copies and kind of uh, never makes a splash with the public. That is the fascinating part of popular culture, right? It's, it's that part of culture that often you yourself might enjoy, but you also ignore when it comes to more academic work or you one tended to ignore. At the same time, it's also very, because it's something that we often don't, we, well, we, now we do have the tools to talk about it, like Scorpio interpreted as tools to understand this object, but those have to be developed, and sometimes they come from very different fields, such as well, cultural studies. You could also do a social study on the readers of comics, for instance. Hmm. Then it kind of implies a different kind of focus, a different discipline, and so forth. So a lot of comic studies is about juggling between disciplines. We do have a chapter on readers of comics and fandom, and there is a lot of work out there in fandom, but then it also comes from people who in yeah social studies or mm. yeah fan culture. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back and talk more about what's in the Cambridge Companion to comics. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we are back. So you are, I guess, selected as the editor, and then do you go out and find the contributors or invite people to to contribute, or did the contributors, were they already in line when you came on board as editor, or how did that process work? I got to choose who I thought could write every chapter. So I first had a, had made a plan of what I think a companion could have or should have a companion to comics. So there's already already a companion to the graphic novel and there's going to be a companion to the American graphic novel. So there's also a need to sort of distinguish or 
yeah, mm. create, well, specify what a companion to comics could and should have. Mm-hmm. So, and it's also a fairly constrained form. So it only has 16 chapters. There's a process of selection that has to take place. So yes, I decided on what I wanted. And then I thought of people who were best suited to write those chapters. And then I contacted them. Mm, right. And then did you give them suggestions for what you wanted them to write about? Or did they choose the topics of their essays? Well, the main topic was sort of six. And I'd written a fairly broad abstract of a really broad abstract, and then they adjusted it according to how they saw fit. And obviously, they're usually better experts than I am, and so they mm-hmm. adjusted it and, yeah, right. made it better. Right, right. Oh, I, I forgot to ask this that I wanted to. How far back do you go? What are the earliest, are we talking early 20th century, or what are the earliest comics that academics take seriously and that you cover in the Cambridge Guide? It's just like with the question about definitions. There's so many definitions of comics and linked to that. There's so many yeah. early comics or first comics. Right. Um, I guess you could probably do cave paintings or something. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the skulls and so forth. Uh, they've all been proposed as comics. Right. <laughs> um, academics have gone back really far. There's this seminal scholar of um, comic studies who was active at the art history department at UCLA, and he published two volumes on the history of comics. And the first one started in the mid-15th century, so with the broadsheet, mm. um, serial pictures, serialized pictures. In the companion, we go back to Topfer, Rodolf Topfer, who is a Swiss schoolmaster who wanted to be a painter like his father, but he had that, he had problems with his eyes. Mm. So he made these small picture stories, he called them sequences of images, sort of displaying certain action with the text written as captions underneath. These were often very unsarcastic stories, usually starring an anti-hero, sort of making fun of the mores of the times. He was active in the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. That's where we start. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the book in terms of the sections. It's divided into three sections. And I'm guessing this was part of your plan that you put together before you solicited the essays. Or or did this kind of emerge after the essays had come in? No, this was already there. Okay. Right. The, so the, the first one is called Forms. What are those essays about? Those are about the different kinds of forms the medium of comics can be found in. Mm-hmm. And we start with the very basic, very essential form. That's comics drawing. So what kind of drawing takes place? Or how drawing informs comics, the history of drawing. Or how can you understand drawing? Which is obviously this very broad topic. But then Simon Grennan, who wrote the the chapter, narrows it down to sort of talk about different kinds of styles and their implications over time and focuses in particular on Marie Duval and then this possibility of reading different voices into drawing. So instead mm. of polyphony, you can talk about polygraphy, so how different kinds of intonations come and sort of converge and interact through different changing drawing styles. Hmm. Do you mean that a single comic artist might use multiple, I guess, the visual equivalent of a voice? Or do you mean that when you look at different comics, you can see that the artists have what is, in effect, a voice? That's it, but yes, it's it's the first um, suggestion that artists can use or adjust their styles to convey different kinds of mm. intonation. Mm-hmm. The voices, for instance, a more caricatural style will obviously add a degree of lightness, um, even mockery and so forth. And a more realistic style will add, sometimes bring some gravity and, and, and so forth. But it also refers to earlier ways of drawing 
in certain way in, in those styles or using those styles. So it's sort of all embedded in a visual history of yeah, of mm. using, applying, developing drawing styles. Right. I'm thinking of uh, a comic like Calvin and Hobbes where, yeah. you know, when they, he, he will sometimes be doing a, a kind of film noir style when he's in a sort of detective <laughs> yeah. or his drawings of dinosaurs might be very realistic looking and different yeah. from just the, the typical drawing. And it does seem like he's playing around with a lot of different types of drawing in order to immediately put the reader in a particular frame of mind to accept it or or just to sort of smile and and be aware of oh this is fun we get to see this type of drawing it suits the joke or the storyline that we're going to be getting yeah that's an, actually an excellent example because in, in addition to to that this kind of con- playing on this contrast between different drawing styles he also sort of when he when there's a switch in perspective between how Calvin sees Hobbes and mm. how the rest of the world sees Hobbes. There's a, Hobbes <laughs> right. is drawn in a completely different way. Right. He's literally simplified into a stuffed animal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, not a very realistic looking stuffed animal. It's almost like a, <laughs> a few circles with some whiskers. Yeah. As if a child drew them all. Right. <laughs> So let's move to the readings section. What is in that one? Um, in readings, we have the idea was to incorporate different kinds of, well, there's so many ways of reading comics, of interpreting comics, but here we, I, I just selected the most recurrent and the most salient aspects. So I, it starts with a multimodal nar- narration or multimodal storytelling, and then it moves on to adaptations and then comic genres. And then life writing, which has played such an important role in comics, especially graphic novels. Then we also have a chapter on racial stereotyping and then women's comics. And at the end, there's a chapter on comics that test the limits of storytelling or narration. Mm. And I I just realized that maybe I didn't tell you everything about the other chapters and forms. I just talked about drawing. Oh, so there were other other forms as well? There's more. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> there's a chapter on serial forms of comics, oh, and then there's right. a chapter on graphic novels and different kinds of graphic novels, graphic novels that appeared before the term. And then mm-hmm. there's a very exciting chapter on manga as a form of comics, as an effective form of comics. And then there's a chapter on digital comics. So when you focus on the reading section... Would you say that that's sort of seeing things from the reader's point of view and how things, what the readers are being encouraged to bring to the table, so to speak, when they sit down to read a comic, or is that is it something else? It's more about because this is a companion. Basically, it's for undergraduate students or people who are interested in writing about comics, but reading and writing about comics. It basically brings to forth the main ways in which we've studied comics mm. in academia so far. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's a focus on adaptations, because one of the first things you see in a class, or what's mo- often talked about quite, is um, the adaptation of a, of a novel into comics form. And there's also this whole discussion around comics being turned into films, the, the chapter, but on comics and multimodal storytelling actually offers a kind of prehistory of those blockbusters by showing how comics were transposed to radio or other forms of motion comics before and even during the blockbuster film period. Then there's, so it's basically to offer approaches towards understanding comics and to sort of offer a, a set of key approaches that have been used to, mm. to read comics, but as a scholarly reader, mm-hmm. but these are all very accessible, accessibly written chapters, so they're quite easy to read individually as well. And the, the, each of them does offer context to their approaches, and right. And usually, there's a historical overview as well. 
Right. But it's sort of like uh, almost like a how-to guide for uh, people who want to think about comics in a more critical way or a scholarly way that we're very familiar with how to read and analyze a poem or a novel or or even a film. But it sounds like you're giving readers a, a set of tools to help with mm-hmm. their critical understanding of comics. Yes, I, I think the reading section really focuses on these tools, but then it also, some of the chapters, like the one on stereotypes, does have a historical um, element as well. The mm. other two mm-hmm. um, parts do have more historical content and more social, cultural content. Mm-hmm. How the comics have been, uh, what they've yeah. meant in their era, and what it means for us today. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the third section, uses. Yeah, um, I, I, I now think this was a very utilitarian word, but it, it was just to <laughs> kind of bring comics out of those boxes, right? Interpretative tools, history, to sort of see how comics live outside, like in, in, in certain spheres of life, such mm. as museums, libraries, social communities of fan, fandom, regular readers, um, and how they're used in education in very ways, not just to teach about certain topics, but also to teach new ways of thinking or note-taking. And then, of course, how comics have been archived or not archived, and how comics themselves now interact with their proper archives or try to make their archives. And mm. um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of I wanted to end with this kind this broader focus of comics out in the world. Mm. Is commercialization one of the uh does anybody explore <laughs> that in an essay? I I think it's broached in readers and fans a bit in the way um Comics were sold in bookshops and so forth. We, there's also, I, I think the third chapter on comics and graphic novels also talks about the, yeah, the distribution and selling, um, apparatus, but it has, it, there's no chapter on hmm. commercialization. So, right. Just serialization. Yeah. I'm just thinking it's, it's sort of, I mean, especially, uh, here in the states, you mentioned peanuts earlier, and and we yeah. went through a, a period where we were so awash in Charlie Brown and Snoopy and greeting cards and bed sheets and you know flags and it, it like bumper stickers and it just became, I think, for a lot of people who were probably born later, they would almost be surprised to go back and read the comics and see the the intelligence and the social commentary and all of the aspects of the comics from the peanuts of the 50s and 60s and 70s because by the 80s and 90s it was almost like a like a national logo to see Snoopy in the baseball hat or Charlie Brown missing the football i mean it was it was on uh, insurance company commercials and it, it was we were just uh immersed in it, you'd get a little bit. Everyone kind of knew Charlie Brown was the hapless loser and and so on. But really, there was much more of an edge to the actual comics that were coming out that came before all of that. Yeah, that would have been an ideal chapter for uses now that you (laughs) describe it like that. But um, I, I can recommend an excellent book on a sort of precursor to this practice and that's um that's Christina Meyer's book on the yellow kid that I mentioned before mm. that's published by Ohio State University Press. But yeah, it's 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 just that it is um a fairly limited um object, right? It's a companion of a certain number of chapters. So that that practice has not been brought too much. But yeah the there's a parallel or related practice of transforming comics into films, that is, civilization chapters and in the multimodal storytelling chapter. Right. Okay, let's um, take a couple of areas where I think it will be uh, easy for us to see sort of the the way that one might look at comics to tell us something about society. 
And one of those mm-hmm. is uh, the involvement of women. I'm guessing that comics were probably dominated by male writers and illustrators, but I, I'm hoping that that changed over time. Is that something that you're able to see and track? I think what's changed more is the visibility accorded to women mm. artists and writers. Mm-hmm. But if you look back into the history of comics, women have always been very, very present, but they were just not given credit. It's mm. a similar story. Yeah. Um, so it's been it's a lot of excellent work has been done on it. Trina Robbins is comics artist, but also comics historian has gone to great lengths to show to offer detailed. So these would be comics that were being attributed uh, a man or or were not being given any attribution at all, but were actually being written and drawn by women? There, there's a variety. So there is a very famous British comic strip that was not attributed to the woman who drew it, but to her husband who, mm. who published it. So right. that's Mary Jewell, who made um, Ali Sloper. Uh-huh. Uh, very one of the first comic superstars apparently on, this is in the 19th century she got very little credit for her work but if you look at other examples there are people who were acknowledged as creators you have Rose O'Neill who made the Cupid dolls not really a comic but an illustration and sometimes a cartoon so you can sort of include her in this group of women comics illustrators and you have Jackie Orms is a very interesting African American comics artist who also who was immensely successful. So she had um I don't know if you've heard of her. Mm, no. No. Uh, I don't yeah, think so. It, it, well I, uh, I unless it, I've heard of the comic, but I don't think so. Um Patty she made one that was called Patty Joe and Ginger and then she made another one the name of which escapes me. She was fairly, she was extremely prolific, but Patty Joe was one of the most, the better, maybe the better known comic because there's also a doll based on the, on the character. So mm-hmm. there was a black girl and there was a black doll. Yeah, very successful in the 40s and the 50s. And she's just sort of forgotten. And only recently Nancy Goldstein brought out this beautiful book on Jackie Arms and there's other material out there. So there's, Women have always been there. They've also been very active as editors of comic series. Um, more recently, we had Karen Berger was behind DC Comics Vertigo imprint that was responsible for Sandman. That was responsible for a lot of these alternative comics that have, that were collected as graphic novels. And so they have been quite present. There's also a lot of women are traditionally, if you think of Eric Shea, for instance, the creator of Tintin, his his first wife used to be inking the comics Mm. that he made. Second wife was also working in the studios. Women have often been active as colorists, as editors, as copy editors, as inkers, and so forth. They have been there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Okay, let's take another topic. And you mentioned it earlier, comics trafficking and racial stereotypes. That seems to have been, I was going to say, surprisingly prevalent, but I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise knowing the course of human history and so on. But it does seem like this was a very prominent feature of comics in the first half of the 20th century, at least. Or did it continue longer than that? And has it changed? Can you see it changing over time? It's been something that is, has always been very, very present and it's connected to, to the fact that, well, comics stem from the art of caricature, right? Mm-hmm. Of making, of simplifying, of making fun of people or types and so forth. And obviously, obviously there's a very strong link with, between the act of making a comic and stereotyping. So that's, um, yeah, the dark side of comics history, but also animation history of cartooning itself, of making cartoons. It's, um, it's clearly changed now with, since there's greater awareness of which images are hurtful and which images are, can be, are acceptable. There's less leeway for those harmful images to get through, but they still 
present, I guess, to a certain extent. There's a wonderful study on animated film and the fact that a lot of the funny animals, these anthropomorphic animals like you know, Mickey Mouse, a dog's bunny, so forth, they they take probes, so they take performance probes from vaudeville and more specifically minstrel shows. Mm. So there is this long history of racial stereotyping and using racial stereotyping for for humor to laugh, which is obviously not completely innocent humor. It seems like it's innocent, but it's actually reinforcing the dominance of a certain category of the population over another. Mm-hmm. It's still very present. Contesting that those stereotypes is still on something that you can you can see in recent graphic novels. I talk a bit about Ebony Flowers. A recent collection of comic stories which goes into detail about that. But there's often been this very strange argument that, oh, you can't just represent that kind of that minority or that segment of the population in another way because, yeah, comics is in a, in a way it's a shortcut, right? They draw a person a certain way and that becomes the representation of that group. But even if that representation is harmful, so that I think we've come a long way from under, towards understanding that yes, and accepting that yes, that these images are unacceptable. But there is a very long history, and the chapter on racial stereotypes, which Daniel Stein calls um, racial lines, is sort of unpacks that long history from yeah the end of the 19th century onwards, mm. and how different kinds of publication formats allow sort of allowed for different kinds of images. So the comics caricatures were the coolest of those images, whereas more regular illustrations or other kinds of image-making practices could be softer. Mm -hmm. And I guess the flip side of that is seeing a greater acceptance of comics written by and and uh, and and about uh, underrepresented groups is that something we see today? Yes, especially in graphic novels, you see more and more graphic novels uh, from yeah by women, by people from minority backgrounds, people with different sexual orientations, and so forth. That that is clearly a trend that's quite visible. It shows a certain openness in the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing the gatekeepers have shifted a bit. It it probably used oh, yeah. <laughs> to be newspaper editors would be the ones who were deciding what would or wouldn't get the space in a newspaper. And today it's probably primarily driven by publishing houses and what they think people will want to buy in the marketplace of book selling would kind of take precedence over editors of living somewhere else. Yes, I think it's, yeah, they they cater to different readership again, so they which is obviously looking for something that is less stereotyped, or that is also looking for different stories, new stories. Uh, the readership segmentation has also changed now, so apparently there are more women, younger women, reading comics than before, reading graphic novels, especially. So that also sort of indicates where or this openness to portray, to to offer different kinds of stories from a variety of perspectives. And where do you see comics headed? Do you see them as having a particular future? I guess the the optimistic part of me says that the future is looking bright, especially with graphic novels, Mm -hmm. uh, the sales of which are still fairly good or very good in certain cases. I, I don't know if this dynamic will hold, I, I can't predict that, but I, I think graphic novels for children, for instance, are still going to continue to rise. Um, and the same thing with webtoons and manga, and there's so many different forms of comics that, that are are developing, that are changing. It's, it's, it's somehow, it's a very, comics as a medium, it's, it seems to adjust to every changing moment or every changing demand. So it seems to be very reactive in that way and very robust. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I don't know if as a creator this is a viable field or not. Mm. I don't know how much um, graphic novelists can really earn or whether you can survive on just this or whether you, have to, you probably have to teach or do other things. 
Um, yeah, so I think the future for the moment is is quite bright, even if this is supposed to be the digital era and the death end of the book and so forth, but you also see a reaction against the digital era and comics have a foot in both um, worlds. So there are digital comics, but there are also these very um, bookish comics that are aware of the object of the book that take advantage of the material, different kinds of materialities and affordances of different kinds of book forms and so forth. So, yeah, I, I think comics will survive. I don't know if their makers will really thrive. Survive. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> they'll be, or whether they'll, they'll be in that category of poets of doing things out of love and artistic ambition, uh, <laughs> but maybe not the lucrative aspects that one might wish for. Yes, <laughs> I do fear it might go in that direction. <laughs> okay, well, as we, we will wait and see what happens to comics, but in the meantime, we can look at the Cambridge Companion to Comics, which will help us understand comics both past, present, and future. Mahin Ahmed, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much for having me. And finally today, Elizabeth Winkler. After she and I discussed her book, I asked her this special bonus question. Okay, we're here with Elizabeth Winkler, author of Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Elizabeth, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Gosh, it's such a hard question. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's actually the cruelest question to ask someone who <laughs> loves books. Yeah, um, I know, but they're the best person to ask. But it is. I know what you mean. If it's, uh, yeah, it's not an appetizing prospect to think you're you'll be down to your last one at some point. Down to your last book. <laughs> I mean, one. I I hope it'll be some other book that I write one day, which. I can't yet imagine, but mm. I mean, one of my all-time favorites is The Waves by Virginia mm. Woolf, and since this is apparently a sort of a deathbed choice, The Waves comes to mind because it's this incredible, I mean, it's kind of a play poem novel that transcends genres, and it it has the sense of encapsulating a whole life because it's this group of friends, and you get glimpses of them at different stages of their life early in childhood. And then it sort of skips to adolescence. And then you see them again in adulthood and later in life. And it's, it's this sort of ethereal equality to it, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it makes you step back. And even though you're looking at their particular lives and their struggles, it, it sort of stands for life, of the life of any person at those stages. And you have the feeling of kind of seeing your life maybe from the perspective of death, of, of your deathbed, I suppose, looking back on the whole thing. So... I don't know, to me, reading the waves puts me in that position of looking back on your whole life. Maybe that's not something you'd want to do on your deathbed because you'll already be (laughs) be taking that perspective on anyway. Yeah. But it's really an incredible, incredible piece of literature from that perspective. And it's not as it's not as popular as Wolf's other novels as Mrs. Dalloway or To the Lighthouse. Um, I think it should be read more. So I'm plugging the waves. (laughs) Okay, the waves. Well, one of the things about the the waves and about Virginia Woolf is it seems like she would be good company at that moment. And because she is somebody I've always admired so much and she lived through so much and she went through so much, I think I would find it comforting to be in her presence and to know that whatever happens afterwards, it would be something that that she has already experienced as well. Yes. I mean, she's, she's, you know, one of those people who you read and just um, want to have by your side for sort of all of life's struggles mm. because there's so much wisdom in her, in her writing. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That makes me think of the end of her life, which of course was so tragic and her struggle with mental illness and suicide. So very dark elements there, obviously, but she did have a sort of mystical view of life and perhaps of death as well. Mm. 
Elizabeth Winkler, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks for having me. Okay, there we go. The Waves by Virginia Woolf. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Elizabeth Winkler for her cameo appearance. And of course, to Mahin Ahmed for joining me. You can find the Cambridge Companion to Comics at a bookstore near you. We are traipsing through September, heading into my favorite month of all, October. And we have some great shows coming up. The Female Quixote. Quixote, did I pronounce it? Female, you know, it's actually British, so maybe it should be Quixit. Anyway, The Female Quixote slash Quixit will be soon. And F. Scott Fitzgerald will be right on the heels of that. Oh, Actually, in between, we'll have a little-known writer named Ursula Parrott, sort of the Bridget Jones of her day, or the Erica Jong, or the, the Carrie Bradshaw. She's a figure nearly lost to history, but it's time to correct that. She should be much better known, and maybe she will be, with a new biography of her that's coming out. We'll talk to the author of that biography about Ursula Parrott and her works. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.